We begin by acknowledging that the land on which we produce this podcast is the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe people. This territory is covered by the Upper Canada Treaties. We acknowledge the enduring presence of First Nation, Métis, and Inuit people on this land, and we believe it is important to move forward in the spirit of reconciliation and respect. I'm Kimberly McKenzie. And I'm Paul Nazareth. Welcome to The Intersection. Thank you for joining us today. We're so glad you're here. Today, Paul and I talk about our two favorite subjects, building a legacy program in your organization and how to support your board of directors to be as successful as they possibly can be. We hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we enjoyed having it. Paul, great to see you again. You too, Kimberly. (laughs) This is fun. This is a lot of fun. I wonder if I start every podcast that way, do I? Maybe, maybe. I think you're often thinking of the people who comment and we can often hear them in our minds saying, all right, we're on the right track. Let's keep going. So I think there has been some positive feedback. And if there's some challenging feedback, I'd love it because we're both reading Adam Grant's book right now. And so if there's something we could do better to serve the community, I want to know. So I encourage people to comment, uh, comment on all of the social spaces that we're in. So it's just us today. And I have a question for you Mm -hmm. that people have been asking me. And I was chatting with a client about just last week, actually. A lot of people right now are dying either of fentanyl or, yeah, I know, uh, overdoses are um, in epidemic proportions in Canada. And of course, we have our pandemic. So I thought we could explore how charities might or should they continue to talk about legacies with their donors. Welcome to the darkness. That's quite a way to start. Eh? People are dying. Paul. Was that bad? Like we could re-record it. But see how many people have said, should I be talking about and legacies right that, now? It's a perfect place to start because legacy always starts with myth and then we go to reality. Yeah. Because everybody wants to talk about it because they're scared of death right now. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that's not the reason to have a legacy program and a charity. The fact is that legacy is the only sustainable program at a charity because more importantly, more people will die naturally than of all these unnatural causes. And we got to remember that Canada in 2021 is officially older than it is younger. Right. So we've got we've got all these demographics working against us on the legacy side that we have to actually make sure one, because it's an actual sustainable revenue stream. People are always going to go no matter what. Mm -hmm. But two, it is the end of that donor journey. Mm-hmm. And that is a responsibility in a lot of cases we have to donors. Mm-hmm. Well, you, I, I know I was provocative because you yeah. and I are very much on the Good, same because page. Nobody says it that way. I wish sometimes <laughs> I wish they would. Well, well, it, it's what they're thinking. It's what everybody's thinking. But I hope that um, people will greet me whenever I travel the country after this with people are dying, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we got to hurry up. Our, 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 our most loyal donor is in the hospital. We've never talked to him about a bequest. Guess what? If you're at that stage, it's too late. Too late. Damn. Too late. Don't go in there it's and talk late. about that now. Oh. Yeah. So, so another interesting stat, and you may know it because you're more in this space than I am, but, um, but I heard something about 
people, the, 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 the amount, the number of wills that are being written right now has gone up like 400% or something. You know, we just got some interesting data from a colleague of our Canadian, Canadian legal wills. And they were talking about how April 2020, they had more wills done online than in the past 20 years of their business. And we heard from Canadian Bar Association, from estate planning councils all across the country. There's been two really big bumps in the will planning. That first big big bump, March, April 2020, when people were grappling with, and you know, thanks to our, our Fraser Greens and our Brandon McEachrins and a bunch of people who coined this term of reacting to that feeling of death, to what we're soon seeing is the bump as we come out of this, reflecting on what we went through and what our values are. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be where the real business is for charities. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the data is telling us very clearly donors want to talk about their end of life plans right now. They're going to be coming at us. And the question is, will we be ready? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I know I started it off with the doom and gloom of death Um but we spoke about that wonderful charity out in Winnipeg uh, that has the book of life and that death is a book of life. Oh, I should read that poem. Um, what was it? The, the Jewish, the Canadian Jewish foundation. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Some of the best poetry comes from Jewish communities and. and yeah, it, books. yeah. It's not their poem, dude, but I did a presentation and I read a poem and I just thought well, about you it look for that. I'll share what I consider to be poetry, which is that okay. another lawyer in BC who was telling me about having to call a tiny cat shelter whose annual budget was 80,000 or something. Uh, and he called them up and he was calling them to tell them that they had inherited $9 million and that the executive director started to hyperventilate and she was afraid she was going to have a heart attack on the call. But again, she said, boy, wow, I can't, you're going to enjoy calling the gallery. And the lawyer was like, what, what are you talking about? And she said, you know, she was on the founding board of the gallery. She gives to it. She chairs everything. He said, I am the executor of her estate and I'm the person who wrote her will. You're the only charity in there. He said, I, and I know too, it's because you're the only charity that asked. She gave me a piece of paper confirming that she wanted you want it. You made that ad. Whereas the gallery never asked, even though she was the chair of the board, founding board chair, you know, we always think it's about donors naturally remembering us. How do they know how to do that? No one's teaching them that. It's really about making sure that we've asked respectfully. Well, um, see, okay, I don't think it is an ask. And I know there are folks who will disagree with me. Mm -hmm. um, but for many of the small to mid-sized organizations that I work with, mm -hmm. uh, it's about peppering the legacy conversation throughout all of the communications. But and that's say, an ask. It's, a checkbox is an ask. It's kind of an ask, but it's yeah. not a. I know it makes a, it's passive, so it makes people it, feel comfortable. It is passive, but I think for a lot of other people, it requires a little bit of courage to put it on there. Yeah, well, it, it requires. I mean, let's talk about board approval for for that. Ah, but yeah. but um, create you know peppering the conversation about how you want your values extended beyond your lifetime among all of your communications travel channels means that it's a very gentle when you're ready for this conversation we're willing to have it with you we want to have it with you that's, that's the best way it's done that's the for me that's the ideal but i don't see a lot of organizations doing it that way you know again it's it's how they it's how they get that energy 
Some people, you know, it's got to be artificial and they're out there fracking and that's their kind of fundraising. Mm-hmm. And some people believe in solar, wind and water. You know, I've always said I would rather wait, just put wait, turbine. No, that's another thing. Okay, oh. wait. Okay, I'm sorry. What? Yeah. Start over. Okay, so there are people whose fundraising is mining and churning the the wheel and working the funnel, and it all just seems like a big, you know, salt mine with people busting rocks. And then there's people who really design donor journeys to happen organically, both the acquisition and the donor development and the conversations. And for me, that's so much more like solar, wind. Again, I've always said I'd rather put a turbine under Niagara Falls than have to dig something out from the earth. And, you know, and that's how people think of their donors. They're burning them up like coal, as opposed to saying we have an organic lifelong relationship that has an organic beginning and an end Mm -hmm. and we'll meet you where you are along that S curve. Mm -hmm. I don't think it is an end, actually. Mm. I think that when we're talking about legacies, um, our role as charities is to fulfill their hopes and dreams and desires beyond their lifetime. And that is the intimate conversation that we have with donors around their bequest. Mm-hmm. So I get all goosebumpy about that. I love those conversations because they are. But my challenge is, is I also live in the world of finance officers and you know, uh, and the fiscal needs of the organization. Mm-hmm. And I know how bosses and boards think, and they think that's lovely. That's an emotional concept. Where's the money? And they're always saying, when is the end of that? Of course, they don't even understand. We're not even making a metaphor because if we do it right, we've also got that next generation of donor, right? So it is also about what they would call the sustainable revenue or, you know, and the next generation of business. But people don't often believe that the eloquence and the the economic can come together. Okay. I wrote about this a long time ago. It's the, 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 the hard and soft side of planned giving. Mm-hmm. I, I have a tendency to lean towards the soft. And of course, the director of finance is going to want to lean towards the hard. Yeah. And, and finding the sweet spot in between those two, that intersection is where legacy giving can thrive. Yeah. Um, so I remember when I was first, when I was working on my first legacy program, I I wasn't the right person. Of course, I called in the godfather of love, David Love, to come in. And for anybody, you can look up David. Any picture on the internet is going to show you exactly what that board meeting was like. But uh, he was a dear friend of mine from one of my first fundraising jobs. And so he came into the next one because I knew that me at 40 was not going to convince this board that we we needed a budget line to support a legacy program. And I know that that's tragic. That's how overpaid consultants make their money, but which is unfortunate. And David volunteered to do that. I need to be very clear, but he was very happy to come into an environmental organization and stand there with all of his gray hair and his 40 years of fundraising experience, but would have been about 30 then and make the case for a legacy program at my organization. And he did that extremely well. Mm-hmm. So sometimes that's what it takes to you bet. And that's what I do a lot of now. And that's what a lot of, you know, our peers even do as well, because they've reached that place where they've got enough clout or gray hair, whichever one, to mm-hmm. convince the board. And I, I really do think that's a tragedy because this is the kind of thing that if boards are kind of risk managers or thinking themselves as fiduciary, you know, uh, facilitators, 
then they've got to ask about that revenue. They've got to ask it to say, you know, who out there, what business has one product line, right? So that's the part between saying how much do we bring in of X, of online, of uh, different types of assets besides just cash, monthly gifts. That's the kind of thing. Uh, we're not expecting them to be fundraising strategists, but just make sure that you're, you ask the expert, right? If it's a marketing thing, there's a person who does marketing. If it's a director of finance, there's someone accredited to do that. And if, if there's someone in fundraising, well, that is an accredited profession. Right. right? Okay. So we need well, them to recognize that. Now you're going to get me started. Yeah. Um, whew, the wind out there is nuts. I hope you can't hear that. Um, so there's a reason why I think boards like to talk about how much stamps cost for the direct mail program. Okay. And I think that that's because where they feel most comfortable having conversations. They think that they understand that. Which is the same in fundraising because most fundraising is organ grinder monkey stuff. Sure. One action, $1. Very tactical. Yeah. But I, and I can't imagine anyone who would run their own business like that. That's true. That's true. And, and so this has taken us to one of my other favorite topics, which is how can we help our board be as successful as possible? And how can we shift the conversation from um, fundraising tactics where many, many boards like to dwell, you know, for, first of all, first of all, um, I think we as development professionals, nonprofit professionals have a responsibility to treat our boards the way we treat our donors it, in respect that when we enter uh, information into the database about our donors or we talk about our donors in public, it's best practice to imagine the donor is sitting right beside you and to only document things that you would share with them. And yet, one of the things I wish I could wave a magic wand and change is the way development professionals and executive directors talk about their boards when their boards are not around. And um, we do them a disservice when we think of them that way, because we, I, I think it, it's, it's helpful to, for staff to um, ask themselves if our board is not giving because they don't believe that they should, then what do I need to do with my board to earn that gift from them? And if our board is spending too much time on fundraising tactics in board meetings without understanding the importance of a philanthropic culture, what do we need to do with our board to help them better understand that? Because as staff, it's our job I mean, these folks are our most loyal volunteers, and we often forget that because you have so many tension points with the board, right? But, but there are most loyal and our most generous um, volunteers who are giving their time, their talent, and their treasure. Not one of the three, but all of those three. Yeah. And yet we treat them like adversaries. Many times I'm making general statements. I know there are some organizations yes. who have wonderful yeah. relationships with their boards. I know that. I also know that probably 75% of fundraisers out there cringe when we say the word board of directors. And partly because they have no relationship with them whatsoever. Well, in very that, large yes. organizations, we're right. talking about four or five levels up. Yes. 
So yes, that's also true. So, mm. so when the board isn't around, it's the responsibility of senior leadership to be respectful of them when they're not around, mm -hmm. you know, those conversations at the water cooler. Yep. And it's also, I think, important to remember that while there is an accountability piece uh, between the staff and the board, but they are our most loyal donors and we need to come up with a stewardship program, one-on-one -on -one stewardship program for each of them in between board meetings. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It does. And I've seen this a lot. And frankly, I've seen my own leadership struggle sometimes with that kind of very hands-on, very detailed stewardship kind of plan. But the ones I've seen who have, it's it's night and day in terms of the relationship with the board to the organization, with the staff. And again, with fundraising, however deep or hands-off it needs to be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And again, we, we just, no one's, who's training these people? That's the other challenge That's, too, right? No one. Well, yeah, I mean, no. there are consultants, many but it's of left up to the charity or yes. nonprofit. Yeah. And that's just that's just wacky. Well, I think there are organizations, you're better at remembering these things, but I think board intelligence does some board development and fund oh, leadership yeah. just came out with this amazing booklet today, Janice Cunning yep. and David. Oh. You know, and uh, Charity Village has some some uh, material uh, as well as board programs like Capacity Canada's uh, board program, Maytree's board board program, and of course the one that we see a lot of the Institute of Corporate Directors. But that one's so high up in the clouds, is it even accessible? Is the question too? Okay, so here's yeah. the thing. Yeah, the resources are out there. We have we have people who are working in charities on the hamster wheel of delivering programs and fundraising and doing more with less and really struggling because they're not well resourced. Mm -hmm. We know that that's a problem. Um, and then we have our board members and our board members are often the busiest people in the world, not only volunteering for us, but running their businesses, uh, taking care of their families and serving on other boards. Yep. So the resources are there, the information is there, but it's not being translated into the culture of the organization. By either the organization itself, or in a lot of cases, people leave it up to the actual board members to do their own education. Right. Yeah, I have. Is, I, I sit on a board of directors. Yeah. We're meeting in two and a half hours. I haven't done my homework for that meeting yet. It's <laughs> <I was> like <laughs> gonna though, right? But I will. I I That's actually right. have time scheduled for an hour before the board meeting to really? do the work that I need to do to show up and and be able to contribute. But that's I mean deep. that's that's the challenge. So yep. building that accountability structure into the board meetings, creating agendas that um, aren't just a bunch of tick boxes as you move through real quickly, but making time for conversations so that you can train along the way, I think, is helpful. Mm -hmm. And um, and rewarding good behavior. It sounds very patronizing. I don't mean that, but we do have a tendency with boards to say, "Well, you should be doing this, and you should be doing this, and you should be doing this." But what if we change the conversation and we go into the meeting and we say, "Paul, you came in and you wrote some thank you letters and you made a couple of thank you calls, and I just wanted to tell you in front of everybody." how much that meant to us. And the other piece I think that we miss in our board meetings is inspiring them. We talk so much about the business of running the organization, 
we rarely ever inspire them with wonderful stories of donors and beneficiaries and the organizations that do that, that provide a boost and help board members leave feeling inspired with and weepy are the charities that are going to have boards that aren't going to want to talk about whether or not the direct mail budget is sufficient. Right. Yep. On a bit of a rant today, but. It's, but it's important because I'm, you know, part of the funny thing is in the very tactical world of plan giving that I live in, then I go to a board who's not inspired, who's not informed, who's not confident even in their own abilities. And what is, what are the, you know, they're playing tennis without seeing the lines. That's bad governance, but that's how most organizations really help them leave their board to operate in. And I'm asking them a tactical question. So then I'm surprised while their answer is no, just do what I understand and is safe. Yeah. And that's the danger. A lot of boards are there to play it safe, to just not be the board that screwed the whole thing up. And that's not necessarily a, a, an environment, a culture of philanthropy or a place to innovate. Well, and it's also very risk averse. Mm. So that that made me think of that saying. Um, I'm not even pretending not to remember it. I don't have it written down anywhere or anything. Um you, plant, you don't plant a tree for today. You plant the tree for all the people who follow that tree planting quote. It's like, you know, the other one I'm thinking of is people who always say to me the best day to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The that second one. Best day is yesterday. That one. Okay. Yeah. That one. Well, yeah. it's the same with a planned giving program, right? Yes. So if, if we, if we have conversations with our board about where we want the organization to be 10, 15, 20 years from now, and we can help them see the big vision for the impact on the world beyond their service, then we can layer the legacy conversation into that. Which is, you know, when fascinating to me why so many organizations think that once they confirm a bequest with a donor, the donor will be like, solved it. And, and not give to you ever again? You no, just got married. That's not how that works. No. And in fact, we've got the data to show their annual giving goes up. They're so much more likely to make a major gift. Yeah. For quite a number of people, they get deep, more deeply involved with the organization. Because so, I think of it like an engagement continuum, mm-hmm. right? So I, I, this, I, I know that there are some more traditional Um, major donor fundraisers who aren't going to like that I say this, but Mm. I abhor the term moves management. Oh, I abhor it. And, and I think if we, if we think about engaging with our donors more like a continuum where once you're able to have that legacy conversation with them, then that relationship becomes even more intimate, right? Mm. You can lean on them for, a lot of things because they're so invested and uh, those are the donors who are closest in your circle and if you've got a circle of relationships they're the ones who are right there they want to see you succeed so those are the ones that we can have really deep and meaningful conversations about all of our about our annual plans yep. and they'll want to continue to be invested in that so but you know the, the, one of the things i've been thinking about recently is the type of shop you know the, the relationship they have with donors what you just described was a you know a hand put together bentley 
and an organization that respects that donor relationship. But there's so many organizations that build it like, you know, Ford on the assembly line years and years ago, they're just churning out that donor, that annual fund kind of, again, risk management. Ask for small, small risk, small reward. And all they're doing is planting and reaping and planting and reaping, as opposed to building a cathedral and thinking the long game, which is another piece as well in this. Well, and that getting caught up in the tactics of fundraising is a symptom of a broken system. And uh, and that broken system can be um, uh, fixed. This is hard. You know, this is exactly why I refer to people to 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 some of your work and your process, because I do live very much in the tactical. A lot of people do because we're in there trying to keep the thing humming. But if the organization, the individual, you know, the community doesn't understand their why, why do we work this way? Why do we do things this way? What are we all about? It sounds like it's some sort of philosophical thing, but it's a, it's like the very spark at the core of the whole deal. That's why I, people say, oh, Kimberly, I'd refer you if I knew what you did. Nobody, nobody knows how to sell this stuff, honestly. Yeah. But really, some of those challenges are cultural. Yeah. And uh, we need to go way upstream. We to have better words now. Again, it's, you know, and you've helped some of our peers with this in strategic planning and those board discussions, yeah. having hard conversations. Again, that was a really cool one. You said, call me when you know you would need to have a conversation, but you don't know what the conversation is. Uh, and that was a really helpful one because we were like, we're well, stuck. Well, Everybody wants it to be strategic planning, but we've done that. They want it to be some sort of board learning facilitation, but we've got all the forms and we've got all the things in the system. What we need to do is facilitate a conversation. But maybe, hey, maybe that's because I'm only cutting you off because I, I don't want it to sound like the Kimberly sales pitch. So, uh, um, I think that that's because... Anybody looking at this video can tell I'm really thinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, hop over to the YouTube channel, folks, if you really want to be entertained. Yeah. Anyway, but but um, uh, it's because they're not excited about the vision. You think about startups. You think about those organizations that were so fired up. They're up and out and working every day because, and it doesn't even feel like work. So if an organization has gotten into a slump, if it's become too tactical, I would recommend a big step back and asking yourselves, what kind of change do, do we feel passionate about making in the world? And some and people, their, their desire skills. You know, I remember visiting a food bank, like probably around seven, eight years after founding and it wasn't that they had lost the love, but boy, they were a big machine by then. They had, they were trying to get one truck in year three, and now they had a dozen trucks, right? So it was very hard for them when they reached that operational mm-hmm. scale mm-hmm. to go beyond that operational vision. Yeah. Scaling growth is tough because yeah. when you scale, you know, it, it's going to require cutting back in other areas. It's going to require an investment. And that brings us right back to the importance of a legacy program yeah. because the organizations that are doing really well right now are ones that have a nice, solid, healthy reserve in the bank built on conversations with donors around legacies and bequests. And you know, it's still unfortunately a lot like a lottery where you don't know which donor it's going to be, when Malcolm Burroughs just wrote a great blog post in All About Estates talking about how still 90% of donors aren't disclosing who they are. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, if it's like the lottery, then you're never going to win if you don't buy a ticket. Yeah. 
right? So you got to do it. You got to have that. Even again, the passive asks in there, but we got to make sure donors know they can do this. So the one in 1,000 will. And if you got 20,000 donors, well, that's 20 people. So I might put you on the spot here, but um, if if there is somebody listening to this conversation and they're like, oh, how do I convince my board that we really do need to make an investment here? Do you have like top, a top three arguments for why an organized, like the top three yeah. reasons why? You bet. Uh, you know, number one, I know what boards want. They, they want to make sure the revenue is strong. And the fact is uh, that a planned gift is on average a thousand times what someone gives you annually, annually. So if you're doing transactional fundraising, dollar for dollar, again, why would you do that with your business? Most board members work in capital acquisition industries. So do capital acquisition, gifts of assets. So it's that diversified revenue stream is number two. And number three, and this one feels soft, but we gotta, uh, uh, we gotta say love is a hard resource. And there's a ton of donors who have a lifelong relationship with your organization. And people say, oh my gosh, it's such a big ask. Mm -hmm. Well, if they've got a lifelong giving relationship with your organization, if you haven't let them know how they can leave that legacy, then you haven't done your due diligence. You haven't done the courtesy to that person to say, you've walked with us your whole life. Mm -hmm. Would you be with us beyond? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's my top three, two head, one heart. That. Um, that was fun. I think we should put people out of their misery now. <laughs> I, think that was, I feel like I could talk to you about this all day long. Well, it's, at, um, it's my passion because, again, I just despise transactional fundraising mm -hmm. uh, for so many different reasons. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, we've got to fight it. Otherwise, we're going to be stuck with raising dollar for dollar every day. You're running a hot dog stand. Oh, hey, Paul, guess what? Mm -hmm. I'm doing – I'm having conversations on Clubhouse about board development. Good for you. Yeah. So when you hop in there, <laughs> you can join us. I think it's oh. Wednesdays or something. It's in the intersection calendar. So all right, I'll get in there. I'll get in there one day. As I said, <laughs> I'm notoriously late to all parties. Oh well, it's great um, connecting with you. Thank you for talking to me today. Thanks for having these great conversations, Kimberly. Well, as you can tell, Paul and I are pretty passionate about board development and legacy programs. So. If we didn't answer your questions or we've left you with more questions than answers, please feel free to reach out to us because we would love to continue the conversation. I'd like to end this episode by reading you the poem that I was referring to. It's called The Dash by Linda Ellis. And it goes like this. I read a man who stood to speak at the funeral of a friend. He referred to the dates on the tombstone from the beginning to the end. He noted that first came the date of birth and spoke of the following date with tears, but he said what mattered most of all was the dash between those years. For that dash represents all the time they spent alive on earth, and now only those who loved them know what that little line is worth. For it matters not how much we own, the cars, the house, the cash. What matters is how we live and love and how we spend our dash. So think about this long and hard. Are there things you'd like to change? For you never know how much time is left that still can be rearranged. To be less quick to anger and show appreciation more and love the people in our lives like we've never loved before. 
If we treat each other with respect and more often wear a smile, remembering that this special dash might only last a little while. So when your eulogy is being read, when your life's actions to rehash, would you be proud of the things they say about how you lived your dash? Remember, legacy fundraising isn't a conversation about death. It's a conversation about life with your donors and how you can help them extend their values and their hopes and their dreams and their vision for the world well beyond their lifetime. So get in there and build that legacy program. And remember, we would love for you to subscribe, share, comment, get back to us, let us know what you thought, ask any questions, and uh, we look forward to seeing you again. Thanks for spending time here.